Well, brothers and sisters, let's stand together <coughs> for the reading of God's Word as we continue forward in the book of Luke, still in chapter 22. I'll be reading from verse 39 through to verse 71 of chapter 22. You'll see there in your sermon notes the verses of focus are verses 54 through 62. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat become like, became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour. And the power of darkness. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately, While he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him, and having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, 
came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. Amen. Have you ever wept bitterly over your own sin? It's what we see at the end of today's text. And we'll go through and see the things that occurred leading to that moment in Peter's life. Calvin says about this text, Peter's fall, which is here related, is a bright mirror of our weakness. In his repentance also, a striking instance of the goodness and mercy of God is held out to us. This narrative, therefore, which relates to a single individual, contains a doctrine which may be applied to the whole church, <clears throat> and which indeed is highly useful, <coughs> and indeed which is highly useful both to instruct those who are standing to cherish anxiety and fear, and to comfort those who have fallen by holding out to them the hope of pardon. And first it ought to be observed that Peter acted inconsiderately when he entered into the hall of the high priest. It was his duty, no doubt, to follow his master. But having been warned that he would revolt, he ought rather to have concealed himself in some corner so as not to expose himself to an occasion of sinning. Thus, it frequently happens that believers under an appearance of virtue, throw themselves within the reach of temptation. So the title of today's sermon is The Bitter Weeping of Faith. There is a deep conviction of sin that often comes into the life of believers who are being transformed that leads to this bitter weeping of faith. We'll see the setting. Where did this happen? What was going on? during this time frame. We'll see that Peter followed at a distance, and we'll talk about that. We'll see that Peter then sat among them. We'll see the process that was unfolding here in Peter's life that led to the three denials, which we'll look at, and then the crowing rooster, the look of the Lord, and the remembrance of the Lord's word in Peter's life that brought this conviction of sin upon his soul, the shining light of the fiery eyes of the Savior, came upon him, and he knew that he was seen and uncovered. And he wept bitterly over his sin, <clears throat> but it was not unto death. It was not a worldly sorrow, as we know from Peter's life. This was the bitter weeping of faith. And may it be true for each one of us, whether we weep or not, that we would come under this kind of conviction from God. And see if perhaps these types of patterns might be alive and unfortunately well and unchallenged in our own lives. So first, <clears throat> the setting. <clears throat> Verse 54a. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. So a little bit of background here. 
We know from the other Gospels that Jesus was first taken to Annas, and then he was taken to Caiaphas. Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, and he was a former high priest still wielding the greatest power from behind the scenes. So Annas, the patriarch, still guiding this corrupt ship, even though his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was the technical high priest at that time. We know he was taken first to Annas by John chapter 18, 12 and, verses 12 and 13. <clears throat> then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Next we see in verse 24 of chapter 18 of John these words, Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So John tells us, we know that both Annas and Caiaphas were involved in these dark hour questionings of Jesus Christ. We see also about Caiaphas in Matthew chapter 26. And those who laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. So none of the synoptic gospels mention going first to Annas. Only John mentions this. So the crowd went from Gethsemane to Annas. Some questioning took place. And then to Caiaphas. That's the course of events. Unlike Luke and Mark, <clears throat> Matthew names Caiaphas. So from Matthew, we know that Peter's three denials that are mentioned in Luke occurred in the location where Jesus was being interrogated by Caiaphas, which was likely the palace of the high priest. And why was Peter there from a distance? To see the end. So the questioning of Jesus is another part of the setting. The questioning of Jesus is underway, is occurring simultaneously as Peter is sitting with the attendants of the high priest there in that courtyard. Jesus is questioned as Peter is questioned. This is what's happening there in this overnight hour of the power of darkness. Remember that Annas and Caiaphas were both called high priests in Luke chapter 3. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Ituria and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, <clears throat> while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. So how can this be? Hear these words from the Easton's Bible Dictionary about Annas. He was high priest from A.D. 7 until A.D. 14. In 25, Caiaphas, who had married the daughter of Annas, was raised up to that office. And probably Annas was now made president of the Sanhedrin, or deputy or coadjutor of the high priest, and thus was also called high priest along with Caiaphas here in Luke chapter 3. By the Mosaic law, the high priesthood was held for life. We see that in Numbers 3, verse 10. <clears throat> and although Annas had been deposed by the Roman procurator, the Jews may still have regarded him as legally the high priest. Our Lord was first brought before Annas, and after a brief question of him was sent to Caiaphas, when some members of the Sanhedrin had met. 
and the first trial of Jesus took place. This examination of our Lord before Annas is recorded only by John. Annas was president of the Sanhedrin before which Peter and John were brought. <clears throat> Peter will have a better moment later when he is questioned by Annas. What about Caiaphas? His surname is Joseph, the son-in-law of Annas, the deposed high priest. <clears throat> the Roman procurator preceding Pontius Pilate had appointed him high priest around AD 18, some 11 years before John the Baptist began his ministry. His 19-year tenure testified to his ability as a diplomat and an administrator, but he was deposed in AD 36. <clears throat> it was Caiaphas who proposed that Jesus be sacrificed in place of the entire Jewish nation. As a side note, that was purely a political expediency statement that he made. <clears throat> Once Jesus was arrested, he was led first to Annas because he may still have been the legitimate high priest in the eyes of the Sanhedrin or because of the authority he still wielded as former high priest. And then he was taken to Caiaphas. Matthew records that Caiaphas, the high priest, tore his robes upon Jesus' confession as the Christ, the Son of God. And a few weeks later, Caiaphas, accompanied by his father-in-law Annas and other members of the Sanhedrin, investigated Peter and John concerning their authority to preach about the resurrected Jesus. And you will see a new man gripped by the grace and the mercy of God in just a few weeks. <clears throat> so what happened? Peter followed at a distance, is what the text says. I hope you will each let those words draw near to your soul. You see, Peter had choices. <clears throat> we have choices. Peter had choices. What will your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ be like? He could have stood next to Jesus when he was arrested, staying with Jesus in his arrest. Probably Peter would also have been arrested. He could have stayed there, arm in arm, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though Jesus requested that his disciples be released, we saw that last week, that was a word to the authorities, not a word to his disciples. <clears throat> Where would you have been? What did Peter say back earlier in this chapter? He said to Jesus, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Had he taken this path, <clears throat> he would not have denied knowing Jesus because in that moment... He would have stood there in front of everyone, not only saying, I know Jesus, but he would have continued to be one as described earlier by Jesus who continued with him in his trials. You see, this was a real choice for Peter in that moment, even though Jesus had prophesied his denials. He was not bound. He was not unable to make the right choice at this moment. He used his own will, his own fallen will, to make his own fallen choice not to stand with Jesus, eventually going on to fulfill Christ's words to him. What are the choices did he have? On the other end, he could have scattered with the other disciples. Now, remember, he's the one who drew the sword and off came Malchus' ear just a few hours earlier. And so in that moment of passion, this choice seemed unlikely. See, since no mention is made of the other disciples except for John during this dark night, it appears that the other nine disciples had simply fret, fled from the threat, right? So you got 12, Judas is gone, right? And you got Peter and John who are mentioned. There's nine 
to vanish, scatter. He could have done this. He could have realized what he'd done with the sword. He could have realized how foolish it would be to be seen by these people since he had cut Malchus' ear off. <clears throat> it doesn't. It's likely, think of it, that some of these nine, not for sure, but it's likely that some of these nine disciples fled together, enjoying the comfort and perhaps the encouragement of one another's presence as they stuck together. Instead, Peter ended up alone in the presence of his adversaries. Now, John was somewhere nearby, but essentially, it appears Peter was alone in the midst of his adversaries through the path he took. Had he taken this path, <clears throat> scattering, he likely would not have denied knowing Jesus that night before the cock crowed. Still could have, but the threat, the scattering separated them from the threat. And this also, this scattering was also a real choice for Peter in that moment. But he acted according to his flesh, following at a distance instead, going on to fulfill Christ's word to him. <clears throat> Another option, if you think about it, he could have attempted to follow more closely like John did. But John had closer access based upon prior relationship with the high priest. John had apparently some sort of extra safety in this setting. John 18 says, And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. You know how John is apt to describe himself, right? Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Now, this appears to be <clears throat> along the time with Annas, but we, we suspect the same pattern was in place when they went to the house of Caiaphas. Okay, when you look there in John 18, this is in the context of Annas. The other option that Peter had is he could have followed at a distance. Now, there may be other options I haven't considered, <clears throat> but it seems like these are the four options. And this is what he did. So in Peter... I think we see here, brothers and sisters, we see what happens when the flesh seeks a compromise with the spirit. This is an example, I think, of what we see when the flesh seeks a compromise with the spirit. This corrupted middle path between total abandonment and total faithfulness seemed reasonable to Peter after he cut off Malchus' ear that night. But what would Peter say later in his life? about this form of compromise under the influence of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he writes these words, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. <clears throat> Matthew Henry says about Peter that it began in sneaking. He followed Christ when he was had away prisoner. This was well, and it showed a concern for his master, but he followed afar off that he might be out of danger. 
He thought to trim the matter, to follow Christ and so to satisfy his conscience, but to follow afar off and so to save his reputation and sleep in a whole skin. Peter had a fantasy world he created for himself that evening. That there's a safe way to follow closely with Jesus Christ. What happened next? Verse 55, we see it very clearly that Peter sat amongst the adversaries. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. So see... What happens next when following from a distance, trying to follow Jesus from a distance, see what happens next. We begin to see that following from a distance is not following Jesus at all, brothers and sisters. It is a path that leads to the Judas outcome apart from real repentance. Do you think after Peter wept bitterly, he went back onto this path of compromise? You see, our creature comforts, that's what we see here, right? Warm fire, human company, cold night. Our creature comforts take over and will set us down in the midst of our adversaries. Apart from active faith in Christ, Peter was here drifting swiftly toward his denials. The current of darkness was moving fast in that night. And he was caught up in it. Believing, however, likely some sort of rationalization in his mind. Think of it. He had drawn his sword. He didn't scatter. But in that moment, he'd rather sit comfortably and safely with enemies than stand up and walk in that room and say, I am this man's friend. And I'm going to stand here with him during this trial. Of course, you know he could have done that. This is a constant choice. You see this, don't you? It wasn't a one-time choice. The choice to follow from a distance was a constant choice. And it is not a neutral choice. It is a choice that separates from Jesus more and more. To not flee to him, to not run to the empty grave, to not jump out of the boat and swim to him after the resurrection... Not for Peter. Peter learned. He would draw near to Christ. He would follow closely. We see this in Psalm 1. You know, I actually thought of this without knowing that it was today's reading. At the beginning of worship, you recall that I read that to you. Because it's right here. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Where's Peter sitting? Couldn't you call that the seat of the scornful where he's sitting? But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. What happens when you're close to Jesus? When you're following closely to him, remembering his words? You're like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in its season, whose leaf also does not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. What we see as we go on in Psalm 1, the path that Peter was on that evening. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. That is what Peter knew this night. He came to know this night that he was joining chaff. 
because the way of the ungodly shall perish. Matthew Henry puts it this way, it proceeded in keeping his distance still and associated himself with the high priest's servants when he should have been at his master's elbow. The servants kindled a fire in the midst of the hall and sat down together to talk over their night expedition. Probably Malchus was among them and Peter sat down among them as if he had been one of them, at least would be thought to be so. His fall itself was disclaiming all acquaintance with Christ and relation to him, disowning him because he was now in distress and danger. You've probably thought of many choices in your own life, even so far as I've been preaching today. Simple things in the workspace where you choose not to speak up and say, he is my friend. Simple things in certain situations where if you identify with Christ, you know it will put pressure on your relationships with people. I hope you will see from today's text where that leads. It leads you away from Jesus Christ and not towards Him. And it is dangerous, brothers and sisters. Next come the three denials. Having taken this close look so far, what do you expect to occur at this point in time? But bear in mind, he could have made a different choice every step of the way. He could have said, yes, I know him. Would you please help me get in there and stand next to him? And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, this man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, you also are of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, another continently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also is with them, for he's a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are saying. So, first note, it was not a soldier with a sword. It was not a leading man in a robe, nor even another man. But rather, it was a servant girl who terrified Peter. His compromise left him with no courage when challenged by a servant girl. You will see the connection between compromise and cowardice. The same fears that led to his compromise controlled him in this moment. Note also, Peter, he went beyond what was necessary in defending against the servant girl's words. Peter denied even knowing Jesus at all. He didn't need to go that far based on what she said. Caring about his own skin, perhaps his own reputation, perhaps his own future revenue. Who knows? He was afraid to lose something at that point in time. Next, Peter must have taken the approach of confidence at this point in time. Staying in their midst for over an hour, we're told. Talking with them like he was not afraid. Figuring if he just pretended as if he was not afraid that they would believe that he must be one of them. But, in God's providence, the Galilean accent was thick and unmistakable, apparently. Uh, Or perhaps some Galilean clothing. Something about him. They were confident this man was a Galilean. I guess if I went up north and started talking, they'd know I'm from South Carolina, probably. So Peter's sinful soul compromise had led him into a situation he had no preparation 
He had no experience to endure this situation well. He put himself in this situation. He marched himself down this path. The Lord's sovereign kindness really unfolds as Peter is discovering his total impotence and the need to be holy as I am holy. He's seeing his own powerlessness and he's seeing his own failed thinking, all of them coming down upon him in this moment. Calvin says, It is therefore our duty to pray to the Lord to restrain and keep us by his spirit, lest going beyond our measure we be immediately punished. We ought also to pray whenever we commence any undertaking that he may not permit us to fail in the midst of our efforts or at the beginning of the work, but may supply us with strength from heaven until the end. Conviction of our weakness ought not indeed to be a reason for indolence to prevent us from going wherever God calls us, but it, that is our weakness, ought to restrain our rashness that we may not attempt anything beyond our calling. And it ought also to stimulate us to prayer that God, who has given us grace to begin well, may also continue to give us grace to persevere. So you see Calvin referencing that general category of humility or meekness that is so essential to us in the Christian life. It does not say, blessed are the rash and self-reliant, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Which is, in fact, our theme verse for the upcoming presbytery this next year. So what happens next? Peter has done exactly what Jesus said he would do. He has sinned grievously. He has denied even knowing his Lord. The one he promised that he would go to prison and go to death with just hours earlier. He didn't draw his sword in this setting. The rooster crowed, verse 60b, immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. So I hope you will see again here the Lord's sovereign kindness to Peter in this moment using a simple rooster to shake him and to begin to call him back to himself. He wouldn't respond properly to three other human beings who spoke to him that night, but God's voice in a rooster somehow thunders into his ears. Kind of like Balaam's donkey. Now, it was a talking donkey. Matthew Henry says, The cock crew just as he was the third time denying that he knew Christ. And this startled him and put him upon thinking. Note, small accidents may involve great consequences. And so what we see here is an example of a pricked heart. The presence of faith present in a soul is more able to be brought back, to be pressed towards turning to Jesus by a rooster crowing. In contrast to Judas, who actually heard Jesus speak and did not turn back. This should bring us great encouragement 
to know that even though he had failed so greatly, the power of God in his life was present to bring him back. To bring him back. It should encourage all the saints. All of us who have failed. Have you failed? <clears throat> have you failed? Have you failed? Have you been like Peter in your life? Well, let's be like Peter in his faith as well. Let's not compound it and make it worse and refuse to receive the Lord's gaze and the Lord's word, which is the final part of this sermon. Verse 61, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. I find these to be quite sweet words. Dangerous, yet so sweet because of the outcome. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. It all came tumbling into great clarity there before Peter's eyes at that moment. And he didn't continue to try to save his skin. He didn't become fearful that Jesus was going to call him out and say, well, he was with me too. Why aren't you punishing him? You know all kinds of lies you can tell yourself when you're trying to save your own skin. You see, herein we see the work of God in the soul of Peter. Combining the gaze of Christ and the word of Christ, Peter's soul is fully revealed in regards to this sin in this moment of his life. Peter becomes aware of his deplorable sin and he becomes aware that Jesus Christ sees into the depths of his soul. The hiding from Jesus is over. <clears throat> from fantasy to reality by the look and the word of God. It's a nice way to summarize repentance, isn't it? From fantasy to reality by the gaze and the word of Christ. Has this happened to you? Matthew Henry puts it this way. This circumstance we had not in the other evangelists when Peter disowned Christ. That is the looking. Jesus looking at Peter is only here in Luke. <clears throat> when Peter disowned Christ... Yet Christ did not disown him. Though he might justly have cast him off and never looked upon him more, but have denied him before his father. It is well for us that Christ does not deal with us as we deal with him. Christ looked upon Peter, not doubting, but that Peter would soon be aware of it. For he knew that though he had denied him with his lips, yet his eye would still be toward him. Observe. Though Peter had now been guilty of a very great offense and which was very provoking, yet Christ would not call to him lest he should shame him or expose him. He only gave him a look which none but Peter would understand the meaning of. And it had a great deal of meaning in it. That look that Jesus gave to Peter. I want us to recall that shortly before, Jesus had not only looked at Judas, but he had also spoken to him and received a kiss from Judas. Yet Judas went on about his evil in that moment, more committed to betrayal 
than before his interaction with Jesus. <coughs> Judas, under the gaze of Christ and the word of Christ, went further on to betray Christ. Brothers and sisters, apart from the Holy Spirit, Judas was so near to Jesus and yet only became a deeper rebel as a result of it. By the Holy Spirit, though, in contrast, a simple look from Jesus brought remembrance of the Word and conviction of sin. What we see here in Peter's life is a tenderness, a receptiveness to the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God. It took but a look and a rooster crowing for Peter to be convicted of his sin and to allow the Word of God to tell himself the truth about his behavior that night. The eyes of Jesus Christ looked upon Peter. They look upon you as well. Revelation 1, John writes, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Does Jesus still walk about his lampstands? Tending them as the good shepherd in their midst. Does he still do this from his throne? He does. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. Can't help but wonder about what Peter saw when he looked at the face of Jesus that evening. Going on with verse 15, his feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters. The gaze of Jesus Christ into the life of his people Illuminating us is the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Sometimes I think perhaps we don't realize what's happening when the light of the Holy Spirit of God is shining into our minds and our hearts. It's Jesus Christ looking us over by the power of His Holy Spirit and showing us what He is seeing as He looks us over. Freeing us from self-deception and the fantasy world we'd prefer to create for ourselves. And bringing us into the truth of who we are. Calvin says, To the voice of the cock, Luke informs us, there was also added the look of Christ. For previously, as we learned from Mark, He had paid no attention to the cock when crowing. There had been previous crows. He must therefore have received the look from Christ in order that he might come to himself. We all have experience of the same thing in ourselves. For which of us does not pass by with indifference and with deaf ears? I do not say the varied and numerous songs of birds, which however excite us to glorify God, but even the voice of God, which is heard clearly and distinctly in the doctrine of the law and the gospel. Nor is it for a single day only that our minds are held by such brutal stupidity, but it is perpetual until he 
who alone turns the hearts of men, deigns to look upon us. It is proper to observe, however, that this was no ordinary look, for he had formerly looked at Judas, who after all became no better by it. But in looking at Peter, he added to his eyes the secret efficacy of the Spirit, and thus by the rays of his grace penetrated into his heart. Let us therefore know that whenever anyone has fallen, his repentance will never begin until the Lord has looked at him. The same sovereign grace which brought us to new life must continue to shine into our lives in each new moment of repentance, brothers and sisters. Every repentance is a continuation of the same miracle that brought us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And may we continue to cry out to Him. This, this should be what, a great part of what we mean when we ask Him to pour out His Holy Spirit upon us. That we would go on in lives of repentance and faith, and if not with bitter tears falling down our face with each new moment of repentance, with souls weeping before the throne of God at the very least. This is a process that God takes us through. The text in this section ends with a simple statement, so Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now based upon future events in the life of Peter, like we've discussed already this morning, we can be confident this was the first fruit of Peter's repentance in this moment. Maybe the first fruit, maybe we don't know, maybe the first fruit was getting away from these people instead of sitting in the seat of the scoffer. Maybe that was the first fruit. But it appears that this bitter weeping is the fruit of faith. Jesus had given Peter, through his gaze, the Holy Spirit, and through the Word of God acting upon his soul, a deep drink of his own filthiness. A deep look into the dark well of his own heart. This is the getting of the long out of our own eye. This is the life of meekness. The one who is drinking of this self-reality apart from Christ on a regular basis. He surely must have tasted in that moment of his own foolish self-reliance his general foolishness for thinking so highly of himself, his pride, his ignorance of his own soul. He didn't know himself at all. This situation proves that. But even greater, brothers and sisters, I think these tears, these bitter tears, maybe not this night, but we know some night there were tears of joy. Because Peter came to have a much deeper appreciation for the grace and the mercy of God. Not stopping this process by just gazing at his own brokenness and filthiness. His own foolishness and pride. But looking up, from whence shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. 
And this is where Peter ended up. Seeing Christ's perfections. Seeing Christ's sacrificial love. His power. His wisdom. His knowledge. His kindness. Before the fiery eyes of Christ, Peter's soul melted and he wept bitterly. May God take us all into this experience of our own souls. Did you know that in this life we won't exhaust the depths of our own sinfulness? And in in eternity, we'll never exhaust the depths of God's grace, which is so much greater. Matthew Henry says, One look from Christ melted him into tears of godly sorrow for his sin. The candle was newly put out, and then a little thing lighted it again. Christ looked upon the chief priests and made no impression upon them as he did on Peter. This Peter who had the divine seed remaining in him to work upon. It was not the look from Christ, but the grace of God with it that recovered Peter and brought him to rights. Because when we are faithless, he is faithful to his elect. Amen, brothers and sisters? Amen. So some questions I hope that you will consider. I'm sure you can come up with others that will help you Apply this scripture to your own soul this this day and this week. What do you think kept Peter from staying close to Jesus at that moment when he was arrested? We can speculate, can't we? Perhaps he had a false understanding of the work of the Messiah and what the Messianic hope really was. Perhaps that was displayed in him taking his sword and cutting off an ear and believing that the kingdom was going to come right then on the spot, perhaps. And when that didn't happen, he's exposed to a whole new world of, a whole new future. That means he's going to be threatened. He's going to be afraid. And all the things that go along with that, those fears. Loss of reputation. Loss of comfort, loss of income, loss of job, loss of friends, loss of life, loss of everything. So what are you afraid to lose, right? This would mean these are the idols in your life. And these things, how do these things impact your choices, right? And these can be good things. This could be your spouse. Be your children, this could be your job, right? An inordinate attachment to good things can control us. We can be like Peter and choose the middle path and deceive ourselves and think that we're following Jesus when we're drifting from Him. How close was Peter when this night began? He was eating and drinking with Him. He's not close to Jesus. He's further away from Jesus at this time. But he wants to be back close to him when he remembers who he is.
So in what ways do you follow Jesus at a distance? Where in your life are you backing away from Him? Where are you fooling yourself? Where is self-deception still active in your life? At least I didn't scatter, right? You can hear that in Peter's mind, perhaps. Or maybe, similarly, you might say, at least I'm in church, right? You might look to those who aren't in church and say, well, they're scatterers. At least I'm in church. At least I'm not like, whatever, fill in the blank. You can see probably these types of forces at work in Peter's mind that night. Peter failed, and he confessed his sin, and he gave up on those rationalizations. Will we? Look also at this question. How does compromise lead to cowardice and complicity with God's adversaries? That's essentially what was underway there with Peter as he was sitting with the adversaries, correct? Is something like this present in your life? can think of lots of things, I hope, where these temptations exist in today's world. May God deliver us. May we weep bitterly over our sins. May He show us these things. I think a good place to start as you're seeking the Lord, uh, asking Him to look upon you and to bring His Word to you, maybe you might want to study through the larger catechism on God's law. And just really ponder God's law. Because it is the instruction to us of how to love Him and how to love our neighbor. May God bless us to that end. May God bless us to that end. Be ye holy as I am holy. That's where Peter was led. Peter wanted to know. Peter didn't want to have this experience again. Peter wanted to know where he was encumbered by his sin. Where he couldn't run the race because of these encumbrances. Will we want to know these things? There's a complacency that had taken place in just in this brief span in Peter's life. God broke him of it. Can you remember times of repentance in your life like this? I mean, have you ever wept bitterly over your own sin, your own fault? with no thought of the failures of others. With no excuses. Well, I mean, John, John he, he, he knew the high priest already. He could get close. I couldn't get close. No. No. Just right there in the pig pen, having left your father behind, eating the food of pigs, is rising up and saying, I will return to my father and stop this. Weeping. And again, it's not about whether you shed tears or not. But if you don't shed tears over your sin, or you never have, it is a question worth asking. Because when we're gripped by conviction of sin, is part of why he gave us these glands up here on our eyes. See, Peter's vision 
was cleared that night as those tears went through his eyes, as the Spirit washed his soul. May this be true of us, brothers and sisters. Can you remember a time when the light of God's Spirit brought His truth to bear upon your own soul and you didn't run away? You didn't rationalize. You didn't turn on your inner lawyer. But instead, you held His gaze and risked being consumed by those fiery eyes to discover instead that fire melting your soul with his love. So, each of us have our own, our own sin patterns, our own idols, our own place where we need to be sanctified. Would you seek the Lord to have this experience in your life? Well, how did this impact Peter? There's a lot we could say, right? We want to we have the same kind of impact in our lives, I would hope. He ran to the grave. He jumped out of the boat that day when they were fishing. The others were content to, you know, come in in the boat. I guess somebody had to bring the boat in. But I guess Peter just, he just couldn't take it. He had to get to Jesus. He had to get close to Jesus. He was going to be at his Savior's elbow from then on. By God's grace. And he knew it was God's grace. Maybe it was still an impetuosity that we see when he jumped out of the boat. I don't know. <laughs> but he wanted to be close to Jesus. And is that true in your life? And what we see with G- Peter as he went on is that he just stayed with Jesus. He, he, was, he was with Jesus all the days of the remainder of his ministry. That the Holy Spirit poured out upon him. He identified with the Lord Jesus Christ from that point forward in his life. And by God's grace, he was kept, it appears. Of course, he had that disagreement with Paul where Paul had to correct him. He had to learn some things. But what we see in Peter from this point forward is that he did go back to being that one who continued with Jesus in his trials. So may that be true of us, whatever it means in your life, whatever kind of Repentance is needed in your life at this point in time to stop any kind of following at a distance and instead fix our eyes upon Christ and to draw near to God because we know that as we draw near to Him, He will always draw near to us. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we praise You and thank You, O God, for these contrasting examples between Judas and Peter here. We thank you, Lord God, for the faith of Peter that you reveal to us. We thank you, Lord God, for your kindness and your grace to him. We rejoice that when Peter was faithless, you were faithful. And you rekindled the spark of faith in him and brought him back close to you. And we rejoice, O oh God, that you are the same Lord Jesus Christ, yesterday, today, and forever. And that we, your people, though often faithless, can be filled with hope and joy and gladness to know that you are always faithful. 
Look upon us, we pray, Lord Jesus. Bring your word to our remembrance, we pray, O oh God, that we, like Peter, would repent and weep bitterly over our sin, but weep even more with joy and rejoicing that your grace is greater and that you are worthy and that you would keep us close to you, O oh God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.